You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have uh, Dr. Barry Fields. He's a board-certified sleep medicine physician working at uh, the Atlanta VA as well as Emory University. He's a leader in sleep telemedicine and was a co-author of the AASM Sleep Telemedicine Handbook. Uh, he's very well respected in the field and has lectured extensively across the country. So, uh, Dr. Fields, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Thank you so much. I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Doing all right. Um, so tell me about uh, within the world of, of sleep medicine, what's your focus and, and why? What, what drove, what interested you in sleep medicine in the first place and then what caused you to focus in on your particular area? Sure. So um, even when I was back in medical school, I was really considering quality of life specialties, meaning how could I improve patients' quality of life? I didn't feel that I needed to be on the front lines of saving lives every day, but I wanted to uh, improve the quality of patients, uh, quality of life for, for patients, and eventually down the road, of course, impact how long they lived and help them enjoy that life. And so uh, in some ways, sleep medicine found me as a specialty that, that offers me that privilege to improve quality of life and be involved in patient care um, over the long term. And so I've been in the sleep medicine field for uh, about six or seven years now, and I realized very quickly that there are many, many, many more sleep patients than there are sleep providers. And many of our sleep patients live far away from cities and centers where we can provide sleep care. So my focus within sleep medicine more and more has been in telemedicine. So um, I am very much involved in sleep telemedicine uh, as my focus within the fairly narrow field of sleep medicine. And telemedicine, uh, as I understand the federal law, it's, you have to see the physician in person once, and then for a, a year you can do telemedicine after that? It depends. Uh, there's not one uh, uh, official rule that, that governs uh, everyone. It partially, honestly, depends on where you get your reimbursement. So private insurance companies may not have any such requirement like that, and you may never see the patient in person. There are states, uh, Medicaid uh, with states, and there are some rules with Medicare uh, in the United States nationally that do require that the patient is seen in person by a provider at least once a year. However, in most cases, you do not have to be as a sleep professional providing telemedicine. That person seeing the uh, patient doesn't have to be you. In other words, as long as the patient has seen their primary care provider within the past year, that often suffices. And then you can continue as a professional 
seeing the patient through telemedicine. Oh, okay. Huh. Interesting. Um, within sleep medicine, what's, uh, is there any lack of doing the telemedicine way versus the in-person way for sleep disorders? Like what kind of um, evaluations can you do over Skype and or phone? Right. And that's a great question. And many of us wrestle with the answer <laughs> uh, because based on the sleep provider, some of us have different uh, comfort levels. Um, I would say for something like uh, uh, sleep-related seizure disorder or uh, limb movements during sleep that may have a more neurologic cause, I think there is clearly benefit to having a physical examination, at least uh, to begin with at the intake visit. I want to assess a patient's neurologic function, sensation, motor, all of that. So for a sort of neurologic-based sleep issue, I would like to at least see the patient once in person. For something like obstructive sleep apnea, which we see most commonly, I'm comfortable assessing and seeing patients long-term through telemedicine, never seeing them in person, as long as I have the capability to do a basic physical exam through telemedicine. Usually, I'm in front of my computer in my office, the patient is in front of a computer at a different office, and there is a nurse or otherwise trained technician at that other facility, and he or she is my, they are my eyes and hands at that facility. They may put a camera up to the patient's mouth so I can do an oral exam. They may put a stethoscope up to their chest, the front or the back, so I can do a heart and lung exam. And for most patients with having a sleep, you know, who are having a sleep apnea evaluation, I'm comfortable with that. There are those providers who say, no, I want the person in my office to do that exam while they're here. And that's up to them. But um, I think it's more up to the provider's level of comfort than any rule per se about what can be treated via or assessed via telemedicine and what can't. Hmm. Okay. So within... Um... Within sleep medicine, what's uh, what kind of conditions and what kind of uh, what's been your focus? Is it apnea? Is it you know other conditions? Yes, my my focus has generally become obstructive sleep apnea. Um, not that I voluntarily chose that focus, but because over half of the patients we see have that as a primary issue, and I'm sure others have reviewed what sleep apnea is, but the most common form of obstructive sleep apnea is caused by a collapse of the upper airway while a person sleeps. Um, and so it is extremely common. Uh, I work in a veteran population, and especially among veterans, we see that a ton. So yes, my, my focus clinically is mainly within sleep apnea, and that's really <laughs> by, by necessity. Okay. So uh, for apnea, maybe you could just go over a quick uh, description of what happens in apnea, and then you know, I know some of the common uh, items to address it are CPAPs, you know, oral appliances, and maybe we can go into other methods for uh, for assisting with apnea if there are any that you know of. But you know, what what is apnea? Just for a start. Right. So apnea literally means a stop in breathing. It's a p n e a, and at that you know part of the root word there is like pneumonia, the p, <laughs> and so. Uh, it has to do with a stop in breathing. Uh, that's what apnea is. Uh, the word in front of it usually describes why. So for most patients, it is obstructive sleep apnea. That is when a patient is sleeping, 
for whatever reason, the sides of the throat are unable to stay open and the throat collapses. I would say it's like a tire that goes flat. Instead of a tube or a column of air, the sides come together and the person basically strangles themselves from the inside. Uh, and they run out of oxygen. Patients run a higher risk of stroke, some heart conditions as well. Uh, sugars can remain elevated because of this constant collapse of the upper airway. And then the patient usually has to wake up a little bit to reestablish the muscle tone, open the throat, and then as soon as they fall back to sleep, the process repeats itself. And that's one reason why sleep apnea patients are often exhausted because they may have been awakened a little bit hundreds of times during the night. They didn't even realize it, but it's the body trying to save itself, but it does leave them sleepy the next day. So that's the most common form of obstructive sleep apnea. Some patients may have central sleep apnea where for whatever reason, the brain is not sending the signal to breathe and the person is sort of in a state of suspended animation for a few seconds to a minute until finally the brain uh, does uh, kind of pick up the breathing signal a bit and send that signal to the diaphragm and other parts of the body. Um, so those are the two main flavors of sleep apnea, but the first, the obstructive sleep apnea is certainly a lot more common and it can be potentially uh, very, very dangerous. Yeah, what's the incidence of sleep apnea in men and women and at what ages does it tend to happen more often? Yeah, so uh, in general, the, the 35,000 foot view is that sleep apnea, especially obstructive sleep apnea, is more common uh, in men than women, and it gets more common as we age. So uh, in men uh, who are above the age of 50, there could be 15 to 20% of men having moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea after the age of 50 who just don't know it. And in women, about 9 or 10%. So still a very large uh, prevalence of people walking around and sleeping with obstructive sleep apnea who don't even know it. Um, and I think those numbers are only continuing to climb. That Those numbers have increased since I was in training only seven, eight years ago. So they've really climbed quickly. Hmm. Okay. So what are some of the uh, ways to treat sleep apnea when people have it? Well, the most common way uh, you had mentioned before is CPAP, which is Continuous Positive Airway Pressure, or CPAP. Uh, basically, uh, going back to the analogy I used earlier, uh, think about a tire going flat. If your throat has gone flat like a tire going flat, how do you blow up a tire? Well, you can't just open your mouth and expect it to inflate, just like you can't expect a tire to inflate when you take the little cap off. You have to add pressure. You have to push air in to inflate a tire that's flat. And similarly, you have to push air in to inflate a throat that's flat. So people put a little machine on their nightstand, the CPAP machine. It sucks air out of the room through a little filter. It pushes the air at a prescribed pressure setting through the tube and into the mask. The person has a little mask on their nose or around their nose and mouth. And it pushes the air gently into their throat, just like blowing up that tire, which keeps the airway stented open. It's like a pneumatic splint. And for most people, that's all they need. They just need an open airway and they breathe just fine. We do not even add oxygen. It's just the room air's oxygen. 
They uh, breathe very well through that. Um, the CPAP machine is not breathing for them. It is not like a ventilator. It is just opening up the airway, creating a pneumatic splint, and the person can breathe quite well. And that is the most common and generally the most successful method um, and really least invasive way of treating obstructive sleep apnea. Um, other ways. Yeah, I've heard about oral appliances and, yes. again, other ways. So what other ways do you know of? Yes, so oral appliances are also uh, very commonly used, and they can be very very effective mainly in people with milder or moderate sleep apnea. The person puts in the oral appliance like a mouth guard. The oral appliance actually pushes the jaw forward by pushing on the back teeth. So you have to have decent teeth back there to push the jaw forward, which brings the tongue forward and out of the way of the upper airway. So the upper airway is not as likely to collapse. The tire is less likely to go flat if you're pulling out on the tongue and the soft tissue. So people, as I said, with milder forms of sleep apnea can use that quite successfully. Um, and then they don't have to have the CPAP machine. Um, other people pursue surgery. If there's a lot of upper airway tissue in the way, like tonsils or adenoids or other uh, uh, tissues that can get in the way, uh, surgery can be done. Uh, surgery can also be done to bring the mandible or that's the jaw forward and again out of the way of the upper airway. And there's even a now a hypoglossal nerve stimulator. It looks like a little pacemaker where you can get a pacemaker looking device put in your chest. It will stimulate the nerves at the base of the tongue and cause the tongue to protrude or push out. And if you're keeping the tongue out, it's out of the way of the upper airway. And it's certainly more invasive than some of the other mentioned, the other uh, methods that I've mentioned, but it, it can work in many people to open up the collapsed upper airway. Um, so a number of direct options to treat the sleep apnea that exists. What about, um, are there exercises you can do to strengthen the tongue and the tone of the, of, you know, your oropharynx and all those areas? So there is, uh, there have been people who uh, have been studying this. Um, I have not found a particular method that works well and has an evidence base behind it. Uh, there are individuals who specialize in this sort of myofascial therapy to uh, essentially retrain some of the muscles of the throat and the jaw. Um, they report good results. I just haven't seen them in many of our scientific journals. So I think that may be an area of future uh, development, but there, there is not one training strategy that I encourage uh, for my patients because I just don't know of an evidence base uh, to suggest it. Hmm. Okay. Um what percentage of people uh, are able to, you know, to deal with a CPAP or, you know, an oral appliance? I mean, does this help yeah. most people or is there a significant number that are resistant for some reason to these treatments and it doesn't work for them? It's a, that's, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. Mm -hmm. So there are significant numbers of people, as with any significant therapy, that may be mm -hmm. intolerant. The exact numbers are hard to pin down. One way that I ask my patients to think about it is if I give 100 people a CPAP machine, about 25 of them will love it right away and use it with no problem. About 50 of them 
will have trouble at first getting used to it, but then will be able to use it quite well. And then there are going to be 25 people who simply never get used to CPAP. And then we have to pursue some of these other methods of, of therapy to treat them. That's generally a guide that I provide uh, to patients. It's really hard to pin down the numbers. There is good data that oral appliances are better tolerated long-term by people. The problem is oral appliances generally do not treat sleep apnea as well as CPAP. So it's a little bit of a trade-off. Uh, would you rather a larger group of people use therapy that's not quite as good or potentially a smaller number of people use therapy that's excellent? In many of my patients who can't use CPAP, I am happy to refer them for an oral appliance because even, and this is what I discuss with them, even if it doesn't treat sleep apnea as well as CPAP, I'd rather they use something that partially treats them than not use anything because CPAP can be wonderful in practice, but if it's not actually being practiced, it's useless. So it's wonderful to have other options besides CPAP. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. Um, so what's the typical pathway? How do people present to you with sleep issues? What kind of issues? And then, you know, how do they get a diagnosis of apnea or not? And then what's the treatment from there? Like, what's the typical set of pathways people go through? Usually the patient has complained to their primary care doctor about snoring or a bed partner has seen them stop breathing or excessive daytime sleepiness, or any combination of those. Those are probably the most common complaints that I hear. Sometimes patients are sent to us by other providers, from let's say a neurologist with a patient who's developed new memory problems, they wonder if it's due to sleep apnea, or a cardiologist who, a cardiologist cannot control a patient's atrial fibrillation, which is a, a very common irregular heart rate, and we know that we can usually keep them in a normal heart rate if they have sleep apnea and we treat them with CPAP. So we may get referrals from other providers as well, not just primary care. And so then we see them uh, either in the clinic one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, sometimes we bring the patient in with a group of other veterans. Uh, so they are all sort of taught in a group about what they may have. To That's a way to get veterans seen sooner. Or I use telemedicine quite a lot. That's how I get my patients to start with. They're referred to me, and I have conversations that way in an exam that way about their sleep disturbance. And then the patients are ordered sleep testing. Uh, that can either be home sleep testing, where the patient uses a device at home, especially if they're a healthier patient, or it's a more slam-dunk diagnosis. It's sleep apnea. We just need a test to confirm it. Or the patient can come into our sleep lab and have a lot more wires and stuff hooked up to them and really get the works. They get tested for sleep apnea and their uh, leg movements and any seizure, seizure disorder and parasomnias and any number of things. Um, at any rate, once the testing is done, if they have sleep apnea, we generally prescribe CPAP first. The patients come back either to our clinic or to the telemedicine clinic in the mountains. And uh, either way, they are provided with a CPAP machine. Here in Atlanta, they are taught in person how to use the CPAP machine. If the patient is using telemedicine in the North Georgia mountains, our technician comes on the screen and teaches them that way how to use the CPAP machine and the patient takes it home. They then use the machine. The machines have a wireless download capability, so we can go online anytime we want and 
number one, check up on the patient. Uh, Big Brother is, is sort of watching. Uh, are you using it? But then we can also compare the numbers on the machine to the numbers on the sleep study, and we can prove and show the patient, see, it's making you better. And then, of course, very often the patients themselves report, oh, my gosh, my husband says I don't snore anymore, or uh, I feel so much better during the day. And so then we, um, you know, we, we measure success both based on the numbers on the machine, but also uh, on what the patient is telling us. What about uh, evaluating the person's jaw and airways and facial structure and all those things? Is that uh, a common part of it? And that only comes later if you know, CPAP or other things fail? Uh, that really should be included as part of the patient's initial visit. Uh, we want to see what their upper airway looks like. We certainly want to see if there's anything obviously obstructing the upper airway. Um, when I first see a patient, especially in person, I get a sense of their jaw mobility because if they can't move their jaw forward or they have tempo, uh, TMJ, um, temporomandibular joint dysfunction, where they have pain up in that joint where your jaw connects to your skull, they're not going to be very good candidates for oral appliance therapy later on. So if I can identify those patients from the beginning, I can put in my note to remind myself, if CPAP doesn't work, oral appliance therapy is not the next step because of my exam. So yes, uh, an upper airway exam and a facial uh, exam, jaw exam, uh, is a very important first step in the assessment of um, our sleep patients. Okay. So, uh, you know, if you look at apnea, what um, when you see clinically, what do you see as the causes? Is it, you know, what, what predisposes people? Is it being heavy? Is it just being older? Is it having airway problems? I mean, what are the things that uh, push people in that direction? Right. So great question. And you listed off several of them. So uh, apnea is the, you know, the airway collapsing is the common endpoint of several things. In many people, it is extra weight. When we gain weight, we gain weight everywhere. We gain weight in our tongue. We gain weight on the sides of our throat and in the tissues of our throat. If you do an MRI, you'll actually see fatty tissue building up in the tongue with weight gain. That makes all of those tissues heavier. And when tissues are heavier, gravity is gravity. And when you lay down, especially on your back, your tongue, your soft tissue is all more likely to fall back into the airway and you choke yourself. Uh, if you still have your tonsils that are large, same thing. Uh, they fall back into the airway. So obesity is a major risk factor. Um, large tonsils, even in a relatively slender person, can certainly obstruct the airway. Um, and then we also think about genetics. So there are some individuals who are genetically predisposed to having collapse of the airway. In other words, their airway muscles were simply, some people's upper airway muscles simply are not as strong as others, and they are more likely to collapse into the upper airway independent of, um, of weight. Uh, there are people who weigh over 300 pounds who do not have sleep apnea. There are people who weigh 100 pounds who have horrible sleep apnea. So it's more than just weight. Uh, it's also genetics. Uh, some of that also leads into... Um, region of origin. There are many individuals in Eastern Asia who are quite slender but have obstructive sleep apnea. It is the facial structure of some East Asian people that makes them more likely to develop the disorder. So those are all various factors that can lead to the development of sleep apnea. What can make it worse night to night 
If you drink a lot of alcohol before bed, your muscles will be even weaker and they'll collapse. If you took some sleeping pills before bed, depending on the pill, they may make your muscles weaker and your upper airway will collapse. So there are different temporary things that can exacerbate uh, a baseline sleep apnea situation. Well, there's a lot to it. Okay. So uh, are there different, so if someone's having a problem, they're having like excessive daytime sleepiness or, you know, they're being told by their partner they're snoring or choking or those kinds of things. Is the first step the best first step to get a sleep study or is it better to go to a sleep doctor such as yourself first and then do a, a more overview you know, evaluation of everything before a sleep study? We generally recommend a visit with us first. Uh, sleep studies um, can be very useful, but in some cases they're really not. Um, I've had patients come in and say, I need a sleep study. And when I do a more thorough physical evaluation and also just uh, interview with the patient, it turns out that really they have no symptoms of sleep apnea. Their symptoms are of insomnia. They don't sleep well because the TV is blaring at night or whatever. And so for insomnia, you don't need a sleep study. I always say to a patient, I don't need a sleep study to tell me that you're not sleeping. Uh, you told me that. And then we can intervene on the insomnia without having to go down the route of a sleep study. And that happens fairly commonly. So I think if possible, it's always better to uh, have a consultation with a sleep provider first. Uh, but in some cases, that just isn't possible. And given how many people have undiagnosed sleep disorders, I think sometimes it's just more important, get the study done, find what's there, and then treat it. Um, but if I had my choice, it would be to have them come in first uh, through usually a referral from a person's primary physician to a sleep specialist to get that initial clinical uh, consultation and maybe save you some steps later on. Okay. So what do you see as uh, some of the new technologies coming out to you know, combat sleep apnea or help people with it? Well, um, there, there is increasing uh, attention being paid to the musculature of the upper airway. So the new technology that came out a couple of years ago is what I described, where we can stimulate the nerve to the tongue to keep the tongue out of the way of the upper airway. There is new technology that just came out that actually stimulates the diaphragm, which is the muscle that pushes up the lungs and helps you breathe. In patients with that central sleep apnea that I mentioned earlier, where the brain is not sending a signal to the diaphragm to breathe, there is now an implantable device that stimulates the diaphragm. It's called a actually it's actually called a phrenic nerve stimulator, and it can at least on one side of the chest cause the diaphragm to rise and therefore cause a person to breathe who otherwise would not have gotten that signal from their brain. So that is really new technology. Where a lot of research is focused now and hasn't come yet, sort of the holy grail or one of the holy grails of sleep medicine is a pill. Wouldn't it be nice to have a pill? And some would say it would be and some would say it wouldn't be, but many people think it would be nice to have a pill where you can treat your sleep apnea just like you can treat your heart condition with a pill or your lung condition or whatever. Uh, there is research into medications that can actually um, adjust uh, hormone levels and, and how that can affect the muscle's movement during the night and sort of either uh, replete or change the metabolism of, metabolism of drugs, uh, of hormones, to enable the muscles to keep the air, upper airway open. Um, there's been a bit of research here and there. Um, it's been noticed that some antidepressants seem to improve sleep apnea. 
The problem is they suppress rapid eye movement or REM sleep. If you suppress REM sleep, well, sleep apnea is worse during REM sleep. So if you take away REM sleep, of course your sleep apnea will look better, but those medications aren't really changing the underlying cause of sleep apnea. They're just kind of hiding it. So there's a lot of work on drug treatment of sleep apnea and um, we are, we're, we're, just not, we're just not there yet. And from a health systems perspective, there's a lot of research on ways to facilitate identifying, evaluating, and treating patients with sleep apnea. Are there algorithms or, or um, equations that can be used based on a person's weight or facial structure that can quickly uh, determine which patients sort of stratify which patients are most at risk of having obstructive sleep apnea and focus on them. So in all these different areas, there's a lot of research on uh, really better identifying who needs the treatment and better identifying which treatments could be developed. So, you know, even though I spoke about CPAP, people don't love it. And are there better ways to treat it that don't involve CPAP? So all of those areas are really ripe in the field of, of sleep medicine right now. I will mention one more that I just heard about today, which is artificial intelligence and machine learning. Can we teach machines to read sleep studies more quickly, identify patients more quickly with obstructive sleep apnea, and in a more automated fashion, uh, get these patients treated rather than waiting for when a physician or other healthcare provider is available. Uh, is there machine learning that can be utilized, at least with some of the population, that can facilitate identification of these patients and uh, treatment modalities, identify treatment modalities for them? So uh, this is uh, the, the field moving pretty quickly in that direction, and um, the research may not have caught up with it all yet. Um, clinically, what do you see as the the short-term consequences of apnea, and then what are more of the long-term ones? And is this changing? Is this evolving? You know, what just to to give people a reason that they feel like they have apnea, or if someone's telling them that they have it to uh, to get treatment sooner rather than later. You know, what are some of the consequences of having it? Sure. So I'm usually pretty blunt with my patients, especially those with what we know is severe sleep apnea, but um, they're not using treatment CPAP. I say to them basically. CPAP, uh, if, it, if it's really significant, severe sleep apnea especially, it will kill you either in the short term or the long term. So how it will kill you in the short term is it will cause progressive sleepiness so that you will fall asleep at the wheel and potentially kill yourself on the road by crashing into someone else or, or into a guardrail or something like that. In the longer term, uh, obstructive sleep apnea can kill you. Because we know, even if you control for other risk factors, the risk of stroke or death is higher, especially with moderate to especially severe sleep apnea. This is research that goes back to 2005 at Yale, and it's been replicated uh, in, since then. Uh, so stroke uh, and uh, all causes of death are higher with untreated severe obstructive sleep apnea. Patients with severe obstructive sleep apnea are more likely to stay in that atrial fibrillation, that funny heart rhythm, uh, which has, has its own uh, issues with uh, elevated stroke risk, uh, potential if the heart goes too fast, you can have a heart attack. Um, so whether it's sooner or rather it's later, obstructive sleep apnea, especially if it's severe, will kill the individual. 
Of course, there are other reasons to use treatment as well. You don't want to be walking around sleepy all the time. Uh, there are spouses who will not sleep in the same bed uh, because of the snoring. Well, if you want to treat both the patient and their spouse, the patient should use CPAP and the spouse will sleep better too. So that's another reason to sort of save the, the home <laughs> is, is using CPAP. So I, I give people uh, various perspectives on that uh, from death right down to sharing bed with a loved one again and try to uh, sort of uh, discuss it with them that way. And I also use obstructive sleep apnea to talk about other lifestyle changes like weight loss, like obstructive sleep apnea is a red flag that, especially in an overweight person, that things are not going in the right direction. So it's a red flag maybe before a stroke happens, and it's an opportunity to reverse course, and it's a fork in the road, and to focus on a healthier, uh, healthier habits, uh, weight loss, that, that sort of thing. Well, once uh, someone has a CPAP or some other intervention and their apnea is reduced or eliminated, what kind of uh, unintended or ancillary effects are they experiencing? You know, what do patients tell you? Oh, my, this is better or that is better or I, I lost weight or what kinds of things happen? Right. So um, that I've had patients report various effects, whether they are all connected to CPAP or not. I'm not sure, but let's go with it if, they, <laughs> if they're more likely to use the, the CPAP. Um, yes, yeah, so patients say that they've actually lost some weight because they have more energy now to work it off. Um, they say they can watch their favorite TV shows and movies again. They didn't realize that they were falling asleep as much as they were. Uh, they, of course, uh, also report that their family's happier with them. Um, is, and many men, many male patients also report improved libido and sexual functioning as well, which under, understandably is a big deal to them. They didn't realize that part of that was due to poor sleep and obstructive sleep apnea, and they see themselves functioning uh, in that way uh, better again. Uh, patients report better work performance. They also report often improvements in pain, back pain, leg pain, knee pain, and you say, well, what does that have to do with a CPAP machine? Well, in patients, if you sleep better, you're more likely to manage the You can deal with the pain better. Um, it doesn't get you down as much. You can kind of push through it a little bit more. So it really changes. It goes back to why I went into sleep medicine in the first place, which is really that in so many different ways, people report improved quality of life from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. Um, and that's, you know, I think I have a great job because it's, it's extremely gratifying um, to see that in my patients in a very short period of time. It just takes a few weeks or months. And if they're using their CPAP machine or other therapy, um, I really see these things uh, take root uh, very quickly. Now, I'd also throw in there lately, I've been seeing a lot of patients with heartburn, especially at night. And I'm hearing from several of them that their heartburn has improved because that we, we think because that pressure that's being pushed in their upper airway is also kind of helping their esophagus stay closed a little bit better up there and prevent some of that regurgitation. We're not sure, but that could be a cause. So um, I, I do see some GI improvement in patients as well. So um, any number of things uh, that, that I see, I sort of use as hooks with my patients and Whatever, whatever ails you, I can usually find it as a thing that could get better, even like kidney stones uh, with CPAP use. So I try to use those hooks. Okay. And then um, when using a CPAP, do people tend to, do they have to sleep on their back or they can sleep on their sides or 
know, does it limit them in any way? From uh, they can sleep. They can sleep usually in any position except they can't sleep with their face directly into their pillow because they do have this mask on. It usually prevents that, although you can argue that they shouldn't be uh, smothering themselves anyway. Um, but no, people can sleep on their back. In fact, many people with sleep apnea used to sleep on their back, but their sleep apnea got worse on their back, so they've been sleeping on their side, causing neck issues and back issues, and they love it. They say, now I can sleep on my back again. So that's the, that's the CPAP machine keeping their throat open. So they can sleep on their back again, too. So really, any reasonable position uh, is fine for patients to sleep in. And the CPAP, is it constantly blowing air into them, or is it blow air and stop and blow air and stop? No, it is, by definition, continuous positive airway pressure. So it is continuous. Uh, some machines will blow more or less air depending on the need. Uh, there are bi-level machines, depending on where the patient is in the respiratory cycle. They may not give as much air at times, but they're always on. They're always pushing air, um, and uh, that's the benefit of the treatment, which is that the air is always getting pushed in, whether the patient breathes in or breathes out. Well, when they breathe out, do they have to fight against the incoming air, or is it not nearly that much? That's, that's a great question. Most patients, yes. The, the short answer is yes. Uh, it's all fun and games. When you can breathe in and the air is pushing in, great. <laughs> but when you have to breathe out against the same air pushing against you in, um, I don't know, that seems really uncomfortable to me. Um, most patients on CPAP do not complain of that. I think it's because the pressure is relatively low enough uh, that they can still breathe out quite easily against it. There are patients who report trouble with that, and then we may change them to the bi-level therapy or BPAP therapy um, that I briefly mentioned, where the machine knows when you're breathing in and it pushes in hard, and it knows when you're breathing out, and it still pushes in some air, but it kind of backs off to make it easier for you to breathe out. Um, but uh, yeah, there, there are uh, individuals who, who find it quite uncomfortable, but only a small minority of people stop using CPAP because of that reason. Usually we can back off on the pressure, we can switch the therapy mode and get them more comfortable. Yeah, what is it about CPAPs that makes people say, I just can't deal with this thing? Like, how does it cause them to uh, have a problem? Usually it's not the pressure. Usually, at least to start with, it's the sensation of having this thing on their face. Um, mm. You know, it's it's sort of unwholesome thinking, right? You're in bed, you're in this cuddly environment, and oh, time to stick this plastic thing on your face with a tube that's going to push air in your face. It just doesn't sound right. Um, but patients do get used to it very quickly and, and usually really love it, and their bed partners love it. So it's typically the, the, the sensation of something on their face, um, a different mask style. There are dozens of different styles of masks we can find for them. And they usually do quite well once we find the, the type of mask that works for them, something smaller, something in a different position, something like that. Also, the air that's getting pushed in, if you think about it, can be quite dry. Puddles evaporate quicker when there's wind. The moving air dries off surfaces quite faster, quite, quite a bit uh, more quickly than if the air wasn't moving. So because now you're pumping air into somebody, that wind can dry up their nose, their sinuses, their cheeks, and be really uncomfortable, causing them to rip off the mask. These machines now have humidifiers built into them, 
We have tubing that can be heated, tubing to keep the moisture in the air. So most of the time, if we get the humidity level right, the patient actually adds distilled water each night to the machine to, in, in a little humidifier chamber to create that warm air. Usually if we can increase the humidity uh, to the mask and therefore into the mouth and throat, the patients are more comfortable. If they're still a little dry, we tell them keep some water by the bedside. If they wake up, take a quick drink and put the mask back on. Mm, yes. And I've heard there's a, pos a process of titrating CPAP. What, what does that mean? Titrating is simply finding the correct pressure for the patient. Um, and classically, that's done in the sleep lab. We bring the patient in for a night in the lab, hook them up with all the wires. They go to sleep with a CPAP on. And then from in a different room, our technicians can remotely change the CPAP pressure to overcome the sleep apnea. So if the patient is set at a CPAP level of five centimeters of water, but the tech sees that they're still stopping breathing, they'll turn the dial and they'll get six centimeters of water. And if they still stop breathing, the tech turns up the dial and they get seven. So basically the tech is seeing in real time what pressure is needed to treat the patient's sleep apnea. And that's a titration. You're titrating up or down in pressure to essentially defeat the sleep apnea. And, and that's, uh, that's what a titration is. We do have devices now that are self-titrating, so many CPAP machines are set on an automatic mode. It detects, the machine detects automatically if there's not enough pressure, and it will kick up the pressure to a higher level automatically. And many patients do beautifully with that, and we never have to bring them into the sleep lab. And have you, um, have you spoken to anyone, or have there been studies on people that have used CPAPs for a very long time? you know, more than 10 years, let's say? Yes. So um, we have many patients. I just uh, actually have seen patients in, in the, within the last week who have been on CPAP for 20 and 25 years. Uh, actually, many of them in my telemedicine clinics. They've gotten outside uh, sleep studies and they got a CPAP machine and now decide they want to be seen through the VA, but they don't want to travel all the way here into the city. Um, so I'll see them through telemedicine. And they've been on CPAP since the early 90s. And they are amazed at how machines have changed. They're quieter. They're more comfortable. Uh, masks are totally different than they were back then. It's a hot industry. So there are many companies producing different masks. And uh, so many of these patients uh, utilize uh, that. Uh, if a patient is doing well on their current machine, uh, they report feeling well, and I download from the machine and their numbers look good, to me, even if their study was, if their last sleep study was 20 years ago, if I have no reason to repeat a sleep study, I don't repeat a sleep study. If the person is having new symptoms or I'm concerned that they may have developed a different type of sleep disorder um, or uh, the numbers on the download just don't look good, then I have a very low threshold to bring them into the lab because it's been so many years. But otherwise, most of these patients do very well they may gain weight. We can turn up the pressure automatically or by titration on the machine manually, and they do really, really well. Okay, excellent. Well, there's a lot of great info. What What's the best way for people, if they're local to you, to you know to talk to you and ask for help? And then if people aren't local, you know, what are some resources? Sure. So um, I am based at the Atlanta VA Medical Center and Healthcare System. So 
Um, if a person is a veteran, that would be the first thing. If they're not a veteran, I wouldn't really see them. Uh, we uh, have other resources in the community, multiple health systems here uh, in Atlanta. Uh, in, the, in the VA health uh, system for any veteran, whether it's in Atlanta or not, the first step is their primary care provider who puts a consult in to sleep medicine, and that's how they get to us. And really, that's outside the VA system as well. Usually, it is uh, notifying a primary care physician that I have these symptoms. And usually, it's very helpful to say specifically, I would like to get checked out for a sleep disorder, or I am worried I have sleep apnea, I would like a sleep study. Uh, primary care physicians are fantastic. They do so much. They have a ton of stuff they need to cover in one visit. And unfortunately, the sleep may get pushed off to the side. So if patients, if, if individuals are concerned about their sleep, they need to assert that to their primary care provider to ensure that the provider knows this is a big deal and needs to be investigated further. So uh, as always, though, whether inside the VA or outside the VA, I think the primary care doc is a great start. And in some cases, they may just need a little nudge. Okay. Well, very good. And then, uh, like, well, like we mentioned before, if someone's not local to you, but they are a veteran, they can still see you through telemedicine probably, right? Well, if they're in, they can see me via telemedicine if they are in the state of Georgia, affiliated with the Atlanta VA. But in many other states, uh, at, in VAs across the country, there is a telemedicine option. So if your local uh, primary care doctor uh, is or provider is referring you for a sleep evaluation and you prefer that sleep evaluation to happen via telemedicine, best to let them know so they can put that in the consult. So if telemedicine is available where you are, uh, then uh, they will be able to actually um, uh, reach out to you uh, uh, that way uh, from another VA facility, even if it's not just here uh, in the state of Georgia. Okay, excellent. Very good. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.